Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot of the cast was made up of young men. Myself, Elijah Wood, Billy Boyd, Orlando Bloom. There was a lot of new experiences for us all, and we all became very good friends, you know. I'm Christopher Triumph, the host of Varvet International, and this is one of those uh, really long interviews that I sometimes do. And I know that I might be talking to a first-time listener right now, and I would like to welcome you on board to this podcast of mine. And Varvet International is brought to you in cooperation with Stutterheim Raincoats, those wonderful hand-sewn coats designed right here in Sweden, but brought to you wherever you are in the world if you order your coat at stutterheim.com. That's stutterheim.com. Please do that and start enjoying rain again. Thank you, Stutterheim, for doing this with us. Okay, man of the hour today is English actor Dominic Monaghan. Already in his early 20s, he left home for New Zealand, where he would spend the next few years on his biggest adventure, filming the Lord of the Rings trilogy in the role as Hobbit Meridoc. And uh, Lord of the Rings would bring huge fame, as well as the part of another devoted fan favorite, the rock star Charlie, on the popular TV series Lost. And that, of course, led to other big roles as well. And lately, he's been spending time in Sweden to film a new series, 100 Code, a detective story of a New York City cop on assignment overseas. But Dominic also spends his time traveling to some of the most remote places of the globe, learning about wild and oftentimes dangerous animals for his BBC America series, Wild Things with Dominic Monaghan. All this and more on today's Varvet. Roll the tape, please. Sometimes uh, you ask people uh, when sound checking to tell what they had for breakfast. Right. But I thought that we would uh, do an experiment. If you could describe where we are right now. <laughs> well, like my, my experience of where we are. Well, we're in a very roomy beautiful, very Swedish-feeling studio on the outskirts of Stockholm, I believe. It's nice. My assumption of Swedish buildings is very much encompassed by this room that we're in right now. Lots of wood, very tidy, lots of literature, big massive windows, and some nice little design features. So congratulations on being a classic Swedish gentleman. 
Thank you. <laughs> Do you know what what kind of wood it is? No, but my guess would be some sort of pine. Yes, mm. that's correct. Good. We Swedes love pine. Mm, yes, good. We, we have lots of it. Well, well, that's good. Good. You should use what you have, not necessarily use things like teak or mahogany, which I think are running out. Yeah. You've been in Sweden for four days? Yes, so I know it like the back of my hand now. And what are your impressions so far? Well, I've been working quite a bit, so I've not had the chance to really go out and about, although I am going out tonight to play pool and, uh, I don't know, have a drink or two, maybe. But my impressions of it up to now are that, unfortunately, everyone speaks English, so there's no opportunity for me to practice any Swedish, which I don't know anyway. Although I do know things like tak yeah. and fika, which we're having right now. Yeah. And uh, what was I watched the bridge, the original bridge, and I really liked the way that they said, the way that they said goodbye. What's, it has like a nice sing-song thing to it. Hey door? Yeah. Hey door! Yeah? <laughs> that was really cute. So I say that to everyone, like not just when I say hello or goodbye or how are you, I just say it when I, you know, I'm in the middle of conversation with them. It might come off as a, a little bit... Uh, offensive if you say it in the middle of a sentence <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's like the conversation's ending goodbye exactly so i'm out to work on that but um everyone seems very friendly and educated it's very clean you know i lived in germany when i was a kid and germany is very clean and they also do things correctly you know if the train arrives at 1427 it arrives at 1427 doesn't arrive at half past two so there seems to be that element to swedish culture I had some fantastic food, which has been great. Some Arctic char and some salmon roe. Oh, yeah, I love all that stuff. But uh, I, I must warn you, if you go by a Swedish train, mm-hmm. it won't be as punctual as the German ones. Okay, good to know. We have a bit of a problem with that here nowadays. Right. It used to be government-owned, mm. all of it. But since they released that, I think chaos has started to occur. Right. Well, that's a shame. Although, a little bit of chaos in a culture, I think, is a good idea. You know, I think when a culture is too rigid, too stringent, it can cause issues with the culture, but also with the people. And I think a, a tiny amount of rebellion is important. It allows artists to express themselves, but it also allows just people to know that you can push away from the rules a little bit and it's that the rules are not going to smash you in the head, you know. So I think a little bit of chaos works. How English do you feel? It's a great question for me. It's something that I've explored all my life, you know. I mean, in a nutshell, my parents are both Mancunians. They're from Manchester. I'm a big Manchester United fan. Mancunian men tend to be interested in their hair, which I am. They're interested in wearing, you know, kind of street clothes and, you know, having a little sense of style, which I do. So there are elements about me that are Mancunian. Outside of that, you know, I lived in Germany till I was 11, moved back to Manchester until I was 17, started working when I was just in between 17 and 18, lived in London, lived in Ireland, lived in France, lived in Australia, lived in New Zealand, lived in New York, lived in Los Angeles, travel around with my nature show. Anytime I get a break, I go and look for something else. So in terms of English, there are things about me that are English. I'm a big football supporter. I appreciate English culture, English music, English artists and playwrights and poets, and I'm very 
delighted that such a small landmass has created some fantastic pieces of art. You know, I mean, in terms of the size of England, if you think about the authors and poets and playwrights and singers and actors that have come out there, I'm I'm fiercely proud to come from that country. But I also am acutely aware that I come from the world, you know, and I feel like a citizen of the world, you know. So anywhere I am, I can, I tend to take in that culture quite a lot, you know. So I think it won't be long until I'm offended if someone's not offering me coffee and cake when I sit down or, <laughs> you know, get into Swedish music a little bit more. Although one of my favourite bands in the world is from Sweden, Kent. Um, oh, Kent. I've been a huge Kent fan since I was probably 15 or so. So why don't you Okay, cool. They're doing a show, which I'm hoping to go see here in Stockholm. Mm. I'm going to try and meet them because uh, I love those guys. I think they're amazing. They're probably in my top five bands of all time. But you listen to them in Swedish as well. Yeah, I listen to both. So I'll I'll buy both albums, Swedish and English. But like, I love Isola and Hagnasta Hill and stuff like that. Is Hagnasta Hill here? Is that a Swedish place? Well, it's not uh, that far from here. It's like uh, maybe 110 kilometers or so. Mm, I don't, uh, I don't it's actually it. from my area of, the, of Sweden, where I come from. Nice. Uh, yeah. I'm hoping to meet my Swedish wife here as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping so. I mean, you know, Swedish women have a great reputation of being both beautiful and smart, which is a great combination for me. So who knows, maybe I'll meet my Swedish wife. Or husband. I've not worked it out yet. I, it could be a man. Yeah. He, he might take me by surprise. I've, it's not something I've done yet, but who knows? I'm open to ideas. In terms of, of British music and so, uh, what do you prefer? Well, I mean, to list my favourite bands, you know, the Beatles are my favourite band. I have two Beatles tattoos, so they mean a lot to me. And John Lennon and Paul McCartney mean a hell of a lot to me, but John Lennon, more than anyone else, probably means a little bit more. Obviously, he was unfortunate to die, but for us, there are elements of fortuitousness associated with that because he was frozen in time and he was frozen in a time where he was cool and he was always going to be cool he wasn't going to get fat and rubbish you know he stayed cool so i think but has paul become fat and no he's uh, not really become fat and rubbish although if you ask my parents they don't dig paul mccartney anymore and i'm always pissed off with my folks about that because i'm like he wrote fucking yesterday you know he was one part of the greatest modern day singer songwriting group ever And they're like, yeah, but we preferred him when he was doing I Want to Hold Your Hand and stuff. So I, I think people are not into change, you know. And obviously he's still wearing slightly youthful suits and he has a youthful haircut. And I think my mum and dad just think, ah, I'll grow up a little bit, you know. But he's Paul McCartney. He can do whatever the fuck he wants, I think. So those guys mean a lot to me. And, you know, I think the thing about Lennon that I appreciate more than anything else is that he took his pain which was relatively profound, if you know anything about Lennon, and turned it into art. And I think that is an admirable thing to do. You know, I mean, his mum died and his dad abandoned him and his friends died on him and he was a drug addict most of his life and and he was a neglectful father, which he never wanted to be because his father was neglectful towards him. And he took all that bullshit and turned it into something amazing for himself and for the world. And I thought that was 
Incredible. So, uh, Mother, mm, yeah, you a, had me. That's a rough song to listen yeah. to as well, right? Especially at the end where he's screaming and stuff. Yeah. So the Beatles are a big deal for me. Mm. The Stone Roses are a big deal for me. Elbow, Radiohead, early Coldplay, Van Morrison, Bob Dylan. Not crazy on the Stones, but obviously they have their moments. Led Zeppelin, the Wu-Tang Clan, DJ Shadow, Fortet. I like um, early Amy Winehouse stuff. I like Joni Mitchell. The Weepies, if no one knows about the Weepies, they're fantastic. I don't know about the Weepies. They're good, the Weepies. Glass Vegas, do you guys know Glass yeah, Vegas? Yeah, yeah. They have a Swedish drummer, I think. Mm, nice. Pulp, yeah. they're from Sheffield. I like those guys. Happy Mondays, they're from Manchester. Those are great. So an eclectic mix, although I've been asking the producer of this show that I'm doing here in Sweden, who is a fan of classical music, to throw me some melancholic classical music, you know, because uh, the character that I play is relatively heavy in terms of what he's been through, and I want to explore a little classical music. I don't know anything about classical music apart from the, you know, the classic classical music. Is that, yeah. can you say that? Classic classical, I guess you can say classic classical yeah. music. like Mozart and Yeah, Beethoven, Beethoven and Brahms yeah. and stuff like that. Beethoven is quite dark, isn't it? He's very dark, yeah. and his fifth symphony is extremely dark. I mean, the guy went deaf, which is profound when you think about it, you know. It's like a runner losing their legs, or I guess me losing my tongue. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he continued to make great music. Probably made, you could argue, his best music when he went deaf, which must just be so surreal for him, you know, to never be able to hear his best work. But mm. I guess he could feel it. Yeah. He knows what it sounded like, he just couldn't hear yeah, exactly. it. exactly. Which is... There's something in there that's amazing. Yeah. And what are you here for? So I'm here doing a production called The Hundred Code, which is written and created by a gentleman called Bobby Moresco out of New York. And it is the story of a New York cop, played by me, hopefully, who... <laughs> who who's investigating a serial killer case, a very specific serial killer case out of New York. And uh, it goes cold in New York and a case crops up in Stockholm. So he comes to Stockholm to investigate it. And I think he assumes that he can run around with a badge and a gun and uh, solve the case. But he gets to Sweden and they tell him, you know, you have to do things by the book a little bit more. And he starts working with a gentleman called Eklund, who is played by Mikael Nyquist. And they never really get on very well at all. They're always at each other's throats. But they have a common interest, which is to try and track down this serial killer. It's really well written. It's very stylish, as most Scandinavian dramas seem to be. And I'm super excited. You know, it's been, a, it's been probably a year and a half since I've acted, because I've been doing these nature shows. And I'm fiercely passionate about nature and a whole bunch of other stuff, street food and young people in Manchester United and stuff like that. But my number one passion in my life is acting, so I can't wait to jump back into it. How do you stay in shape for one and a half years acting-wise? Mm. Is that a stupid question? Do you mean like like physically? No, I mean to not forget how you do it. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, I'm going to go on set. We'll see if I've, uh, if I've become rubbish. I think I act a lot. I would argue that we all act a lot. It just depends on how good you are at it. And, you know, you are invention comes out of necessity. And I think sometimes if you have to lie and people have to believe you, it's essential that people believe you, 
you know, no, no, don't shoot. I don't have, I don't have it. I don't have it. I don't have it. You will be a really good actor. You know, if, uh, if someone comes home and says, did you eat the last piece of candy? And it doesn't really matter. Maybe you're not a good actor, you know? So I think, um, we can all be good actors when we choose to be, but I spend a lot of my day acting. Just that's me. I spend a lot of time watching people and imitating them and trying to be them and working out how they're different from the last person that I tried to imitate or different from me, you know? So I'm always working on that thing, but I'm not sure really how, uh, how I stay in shape. It's just, it's a huge part of me. So I think I always do it, you know? And how do you stay in shape physically? Well, the nature show that I do keeps me relatively physically in shape. You know, I travel around the world Being chased by uh, <laughs> elephants. Be, being chased by elephants or chasing other things. So that keeps me on my toes. And also in terms of reaction time, you have to be on it because you're holding on to venomous snakes and stuff like that. And uh, you have to make sure that, you know, you can see them coming at you. So I do a little bit of yoga, which I'm going to do in Stockholm, hopefully. Maybe that's where I'll meet my Swedish wife. Might be. Maybe. Yeah. And I go to the gym. And I'm buying a bicycle today, so I'll be bicycling around Stockholm. And um, I don't eat a huge amount, which keeps you in shape, you know? I eat less calories than I burn, I think. So my mum used to say to me when I was a kid, if there was something more interesting to do, you wouldn't eat. You know, if you sat down, but there was something on the TV or there was a football game going on or there was some book you wanted to read, you would just forego eating, you know? And I think I'm like that as an adult. If there's something more stimulating... I'll go do it and eat. That sounds like a good thing. Maybe, although if you kept doing that, you'd waste away to nothing, wouldn't you? Okay, so uh, now you're in this new apartment. You've been there for four days. Mm. Do you have like a process, uh, some kind of ritual that you do when you come to a new place like that? Well, I mean, it's important for me to try and be as comfortable as possible in a place. So, you know, I bring all my music and computers and um, clothes and things from back home that make me feel a little bit. I brought my PlayStation with me. <laughs> I told my mum about it. I said, oh, I brought my PlayStation. My mum said, why are you bringing games? You're 37 years old. You don't need games. And I said, well, first of all, it's not games like you think. It's not, you know, beep, 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 beep. These are very sophisticated, immersive games. And also, you know, you can watch Netflix on your PlayStation, you can stay in touch with people, you can send emails, you know, so it's it's a computer, essentially, you know, it's a little computer. But the character that I play, as I said earlier on, is quite dark. So I brought quite a few dark games with with me. There's a game called The Last of Us, which is about a man and a girl in a post-apocalyptic kind of world with zombies and not zombies. Yeah, zombies, the undead. The Walking Dead. And he's trying to protect her and she's trying to protect him. And it's very dark. There's no color. It's all pretty much based at night. And there's a lot of death around. So I'm going to play that because it will help me in that kind of dark place. And then also I brought Grand Theft Auto V, which is all about vice and crime and stealing cars and assassinations and stuff. So the, both those things are dark and they keep me in a dark place, you know, because I'm reading a lot of true crime about serial killers and I like to stay in this place I, yeah, I had this long conversation with my parents when I was just there in Spain where they live in Spain where I said to them before I turned up I said hey I'm you know I feel like I'll be a little different because I've been researching all this 
very dark matter and I've been listening to sad music and I've been thinking about dark stuff so I might be a little heavier than normal and I think my parents just kind of laughed that stuff off like oh okay fucking actors do you know what I mean but I was darker and they were a little concerned about me and I just said like don't worry because it's something that I do and it's something that I know it's not something that is new to me but that's the way that I approach work I try and be that person as much as I can like I don't normally wear my hair this way but I'm wearing my hair like this because that's how the guy wears it and I would normally shave but he doesn't shave so I'm where I try and be that thing as quickly as possible and sometimes it's fun because maybe you're playing a clown or an acrobat or a, something light and airy and positive and sometimes it's it's tougher because he's dark and crazy and this guy is a detective who's around a lot of death and he's killed a few people and he lives on his own so that's another important thing for me I wanted to be isolated I, you know I'm going to be a little sociable I'm going out tonight to play pool and stuff but I think more than anything else I'll probably purposefully isolate myself it's helpful I was thinking about your part on Lost mm. did you live that part as well Yeah, I did. I did live Charlie. You know, I try and live all of them, you know. So I think with Charlie, I probably partied a little bit more than normal. I didn't do H because I didn't feel like I needed to do H to get to that place. You know, he was a heroin addict, so I wasn't I wasn't doing anything associated with heroin. Have you tried it? I've been in circles where it's been around and I've I've met and chatted with a lot of people who were heroin addicts. And actually This is something that I found out years later and it scared the fuck out of me. But I used to be a chef in Manchester a long time ago, like when I was like 16, almost 17. And I was friends with a guy who worked in the kitchen called Randolph. And he lived in kind of a dodgy area of town, Manchester. And every so often he'd say, will you give me a lift back to the house? I was always like, oh man, I gotta go to fucking Longsight, which is a terrible place in Manchester. And he said, well, if you do it, we can smoke a joint. And I didn't have enough money to do that at the time. So I was like, okay, let's do that. So, you know, I did it a few times, four or five times. We'd go in and his girlfriend or wife would have like a pre-rolled joint in there, smoke a joint and then I'd go home. And then years later, I saw him in Manchester. He was walking around. I was like, oh, hey, Randolph, what's going on? And we're just catching up. And he said to me, hey, what do you think of that weed we were smoking back then and I said oh I don't I don't remember it was good I guess I mean I don't I don't really think about it he said oh my girlfriend used to sprinkle H in it uh huh okay and I didn't know you know I was like oh shit that's crazy I wish I'd have known that I wouldn't have you know danced with that idea so in terms of Charlie I was a little probably more gregarious than normal and I mean, I am into music, but I was definitely into music with Charlie, you know, playing the guitar a lot, playing the piano a lot, badly, I might add. It's always sad. It's yeah. never, it's never like, it's always like, ding, ding, ding. It sounds like Sigaros to me, you know, Sigaros? Yeah. Yeah, I love Sigaros. So I did kind of live it a little bit, but he was half good and half bad, Charlie. That was the thing that I loved about him. He, I always, I always thought of him as a bad, good guy. So he wanted to do the right thing, but sometimes his demons told him to do something else. And I 
definitely lived that life for a while. Like, oh, I should probably go home and not have another drink, or I should probably not go to this person's house, but I would do it to keep me in that place, you know. Is that what we, <coughs> we call method acting? I don't think so. That would probably be more kind of method living. Method acting is is, you know, the process of creating a backstory for your character and maintaining the character's personality the entire time, you know? So if you were to be playing, let's say, a priest who is struggling to remain a priest, you would dress like that all the time, you would flirt with women, but then step back, you would think about when he wanted to be a priest, maybe that happened when he was eight, maybe that happened when he was ten, If you were to freeze time and push him forward 20 years, would he still be a priest? You create all that backstory. For me, the way that I approach stuff, it's more like, well, what can I bleed into my life as Dom that has a connotation with the character? But I, I there's a slight distance because I don't, you know, I'm playing this guy from New York, but I'm not talking like this the entire time. Like I'll do that when I'm on set. But in my normal life, I talk, you know, like this because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be that person all the time. I want to explore him from a from a slight angle. But is a New York accent is it easy for you to do? The thing about a New York accent, which is helpful for me, is that it has a similarity with Manchester because in Manchester we don't roll the R in a standard. American accent, they would talk like this, and no, that that was New York. And it's, I have to think how to do it. So this is New York. This is how I'm talking. And in in New York, if they would say Manchester, there's no R at the end. But guy from the United States who doesn't sound like he's from the East Coast would say Manchester. I come from Manchester, but I don't say that. I say Manchester. I come from Manchester. So there's elements about it that are similar. But there's some things that are different. Like they, I say human. I'm a human being, but they say human. I'm a human being. Like, where's your human? Where's your humanity? They just completely drop the H. You know, mm. more than anything else, the New York accent, the New York sensibility is based around an attitude. It's based around this stance that they're capable, that they can handle anything, that they're tough, that nothing scares them. So I think there's another element of that that I have to be really careful of with me, that I'm not approaching my nights out in Sweden, or my you know new relationships with a with the wrong attitude, with this attitude of like you know fuck you, I'm okay, I can you know I can fucking handle it, I can handle it, I'm a fucking man, like I don't. That's not who I am, really. You know, I have vulnerabilities. Speaking of which. You have some pretty fresh scars on your arm, oh, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was uh, a lizard bite. I was in uh, Thailand about oh, it was probably two months ago now. We were doing a show where I was looking for the slow loris, which is the only venomous primate in the world. It's also a poisonous primate, which is the only poisonous primate in the world. Very bizarre-looking creature, similar to a bush baby. You know what a bush baby looks like? Big, big-eyed primate. And they live in Thailand, and they're quite rare, beautiful. Sadly, they're quite popular in the illegal pet trade, where they pull their teeth out. They pull their poisonous, their venomous fangs out. So what for? So that they don't bite the person who's bought them as a gift. Uh-huh, yeah, okay. It's a terrible thing. So we went to Thailand to look for this uh, primate, 
And in the process of looking for this primate that lives in forests, we stumbled across a lizard that was probably six and a half, maybe seven feet. And um, we did a scene where I was working with it. And uh, it was telling me that it wasn't a big fan of hanging out this close to humans. And I was trying to tell it that we weren't going to be here for too much longer and we just needed to do a couple more things. And it lost its patience and turned around and bit me. And um, I got about 40 stitches in my arm. But the interesting thing to keep in mind with that is that the lizard doesn't care about those things. It doesn't care about you, certainly, but it doesn't care about the interaction that it's just had with you. It's not like two humans in a bar get into an altercation and have a fight and maybe those humans have to go through therapy for the next few years and they're traumatized and they have bad dreams and they think about the situation over and over again. The lizard is just being a wild animal mm. and it's using its its capabilities to say, leave me alone. So when I came over to it, it just went... And then it ran off into the into the forest and maybe met a girlfriend or had some food and didn't think about it, you know. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully, yeah. I mean, any any time you get bitten by an animal, it's always your fault. It's always the human's fault, you know. And I was acutely aware that I had probably pushed it a little too far in a, in a hot on a hot day, and uh, it told me to leave it alone. And then we did. You created this show, right? Mm. Did you have any training for the, that kind of situations? Well, I have those animals and I've had those animals all my life, you know. I've kept lizards since I was probably six or seven. I've had snakes since I was probably 12 or 13. I, you know, I've kept all manner of animals, snails and slugs and ants and wasps and scorpions and spiders and prey mantis and centipedes and weird stuff, you know. And I like horses as well and I like dogs and certain cats, but... The reason why we don't tell those stories is that there's always going to be dogs and cats. And we're always going to know about dogs and cats because everyone has them and everyone's interested in them. I'm interested in telling stories that probably haven't been told as much, you know, the untrod kind of tales. And I'm also interested in the truth. And a lot of those animals are kind of encompassed with this myth that isn't true. People think that if you see a snake, it's going to come and get you. And people think that, you know, spiders are evil or all scorpions will sting you. But wild animals have no concept of evil. They don't know what that means, you know. They're just being wild and they don't lie. Human beings are probably, outside of maybe some sophisticated primates, the only animal that lie. If you see a rattlesnake, it will shake its tail in a very clear communication that says... Please don't come any closer. I'm not enjoying this experience. And if you back away, it will stop rattling. It's very mm. simple, you know. If you get closer and closer, it'll rattle. And then if you get really close and it's still stressed out, it will bite, you know. But you can be with a human being in a bar and they can say, it's fine, it's okay, it's not a problem. And then they can smash you over the head with a bottle, you know. And I don't... It's, it's what I love about interactions with wild animals. If you connect with them they will be very truthful with you. And I, I like truth. I'm obsessed with seeking it, you know. So that's why you created the show. <laughs> right. Excuse me. Yeah, I didn't answer your question today. So I, um, I created the show because it's the way that I holiday. So when I have free time, instead of going to a beach or an island or a, or a city that I'm interested in, I go to a place with an animal that I want to find. 
and I'll go to a capital city and I'll ask people about that animal when I'm having dinner or when I'm walking around or when I'm jumping on a bus. Hey, do you know about the, you know, this, do you know about the whale shark? Do you know where I would see the whale shark? Do you, do you know, do you know anyone that's seen it? Oh, okay. I have this notebook with me all the time. Oh, I write stuff down, write stuff down. So someone will say, oh, you want to see the whale shark? Okay, you have to go to this city. So I'll take a bus or a train or a boat to that city and then I'll jump off the boat and I'll say, hey, I'm here looking for the whale shark. Oh, you should speak to Stephen or David. And I go, oh, David, hey, you know, it's this exploration, it's this journey. And I don't want it to happen easy. You know, I don't want to go on the computer and search Google and go, you know, Thailand, whale shark. You know, I, I want to work it out for myself. I like the... I like the exploration of that. I like the investigation of that, you know. So Steve Irwin died, who I was hugely interested in and admired his work. And when he died, it kind of rocked me, you know, it kind of freaked me out and, and I was thrown by it. And in the midst of that, I thought, well, I've been talking about this nature show all my life and I've been watching Jacques Cousteau and David Attenborough and Steve Irwin and Simon King and all these people and... Maybe Steve Irwin's death is the motivation for me to go do this nature show. So I put together an idea and I sat down with Discovery Channel and Animal Planet and different people in the States. And I think they all said, well, that's a great idea, but you're an actor. Like, what do you know about these animals? And eventually some independent producer from Canada came and met with me and I talked to him for a couple of hours about animals and the animals that I keep and the animals that I love and the animals that I know. And I think he realized that it was something that I knew about. He asked me what episode one looked like. And I said, we'll go to Ecuador and find the army ant, which ants are probably my favorite animal in the world. Ants. Ants. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. I, and I wanted to, I wanted to lie down in a trail of army ants and see what it felt like to be overwhelmed with ants and what they do and how they deal with such a large body that they're trying to butcher and take away to their kids. And uh, we wrote this first episode and went to Ecuador and then from there traveled around the world and started doing the show. So it was a kind of a simplistic way of approaching the show. Are there any animals that you would like to see while you're here in Sweden? Well, yeah. I mean, there's always animals that I'd like to see. If I get the chance, I want to go to Svalbard and uh, see if I can see polar bears, which are obviously something that I'm very interested in. You know, because Sweden has the ability to get very cold, it's not exploding with animal life. There are some things here that are interesting, but it's not like the jungles of Peru or Brazil. And uh, I did have this tick inoculation. So seeing those interesting little creatures that have the ability to really do something quite scary to us would be interesting. I mean, I'll probably pick up, I have a lot of field guides to different countries. I'm sure I'll pick up a field guide to the animals of Sweden and uh, have a look. I mean, what are the archetypal animals of Sweden? You have like deer and... Yes, elks. Elk. Do you have bear or moose? Yes, you, yeah, wolf, both. Wolves? Wolves, yes. So I'd like to see wolves. That's an amazing animal. We also have uh, lynx. Oh, yeah, lynx are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So all those things, I mean, you know, I'd love to see any of those things. I guess I need to leave Stockholm for that type of stuff. I would assume so, yes. <laughs> you don't see lynx running down the street, no? 
I think we do have them, but I would presume that you, you're not interested in, in seeing them in captivity. Not as much, although, you know, I get asked a lot about zoos and how I feel about them. And I mean, there are strengths and weaknesses to zoos, as there are, you know, any major piece of industry. The great thing that good zoos do is they have a great conservation program and they work with animals that are on the brink of extinction or certainly being endangered and they build up their population numbers. What zoos do badly, I think, is imprison intelligent large animals that are traumatized by those things. I don't think large mammals should be in zoos. I don't think any animal that roams should be in a zoo. There are a lot of reptiles and a lot of invertebrates, a lot of insects that actually do quite well in captivity. You know, I have snakes at home and they live in relatively small areas. You know, like their, their, their living environment's about as big as this table. But if you were to put my snake in an environment as big as this room, it would just sit in the corner. It, mm. wouldn't, it wouldn't roam around. They like to feel secure and safe. That's the same idea with my spiders. You know, I have tarantulas and black widows. They feel insecure, they feel unsafe when they're exposed. They like to sit in a, in a corner. So some animals, I think, do very well in zoos. What I'd like to do, this is a very big, lofty ambition of mine, maybe 15, 20 years into the future, is to be part of a movement that creates a, what I call a new zoo. And the new zoo is only animals that flourish in captivity, And then if you walk over to a polar bear enclosure or a bear enclosure or an elephant or lion enclosure, the animal's not there. It's just a screen where you can interact with that particular animal. You can see how they feed. You can maybe feel a piece of fake fur. You can see a tooth. You can play games, you know. Is this a tiger tooth or a lion tooth, you know, and you can do quizzes and stuff. And then you move to a different enclosure that's a snake that lives in captivity. I'd like to create a new zoo that does that. Someday. One day, yeah. Wolves are a fairly large animal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a large dog. It's also a wild animal. You yeah. Know? I talk to people a lot about... I, I, I use the wolf a lot because um, I talk to people a lot about evolution. You know, I live in um, the United States for a lot of my time and uh, there are large areas of the United States where they don't teach evolution. They teach creationism and... Uh, There are huge communities that do not believe in evolution. And I say, are you aware of dogs? And they say, yeah. And I say, well, all dogs originate from the, from the wolf, from the grey wolf. And that is evolution in practice. It's just we've fabricated it, you know, we've created it ourselves, we've accelerated it. But that's all it is, you know. We've, We've done our own natural selection to accelerate the course of evolution. But if you were to take the grey wolf and put it in Australia over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years, it would probably lose all its hair and become thinner. And uh, certain characteristics would change in it. And that's all we've done, you know. So if you don't believe in evolution, then that means you don't necessarily believe in pedigree dogs, and pedigree dogs exist. So, But how, how do you create pugs from a wolf well it's a large step it is and it doesn't come from wolf to pug obviously it goes wolf to this dog to this dog to this dog and then maybe you get to a place where you've got something like a Staffordshire Bull Terrier or a Bulldog and then what you say is in a litter of dogs tend to have quite large litters 
maybe six, maybe eight, maybe 10, maybe 12, sometimes even 14, 16 dogs. So let's say you have 10 puppies and you want a pug eventually. You'd say, okay, out of all those puppies, I like the puppy with the squishy face and the short tail and the shortened limbs. And then you call someone who's just had a litter of puppies and you say, hey, did, did, did any of those puppies have a squishy face and a short tail? And then you breed them. And then you take from those puppies another one, and then another one, and then another one. And then you just eventually get there. That's, mm. that's how breeders do it, you know. It probably started before they could call someone, though. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it probably did. You've probably got groups of people, humans, living in the wilds, who have wolves circling their camp, who they feed scraps to. Because they understand that if they keep the wolves close and have some sort of relationship with them, the wolves will warn them if another human comes by or a bunch of humans come by or if a bear comes by or something scary. And then those wolves get closer and closer. Then those wolves have babies. And then they pick the tamest wolf out of those babies to actually come live with them. And it, they accelerate the process. And, you know, a few hundred thousand years later, you've got a chihuahua that you can fit in your pocket, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You uh, said that you were born in Germany. Mm. Why? That's where my mum went into labour. <laughs> no, my, um, my dad's a retired teacher. My mum's a retired nurse. And uh, my dad... And mum made the decision when my brother was one year old and my mum was pregnant to move to Germany to for my dad to teach kids over there, English Army Forces kids, and my mum to work in the local hospitals. Their lifestyle was great. You know, the people are lovely in Germany and uh, the food's nice. Is it really? <laughs> there's some great stuff that's come out of Germany. Sauerkraut, amazing. Yeah. Some sausages, there's some good German beer, good German candy. The Sauerbraten is really good, you know, Sauerbraten? No. It's like a preserved meat in a gravy with s- some spices. It's good. Well, you're really selling it. <laughs> <laughs> I think more than anything else, it was the lifestyle. The weather's good, you know, they... Um, They moved a little bit. Their kids were young. I mean, that's just how it happened. Do you know German? And Bistian. But I went to a gym. I went to an English-speaking school, you know, and I left when I was 11. So I think if I'd have stayed till I was maybe 13 or 14, my German would be quite good because I I'd just started to play football with German kids and socialize with German kids. But up until then, it was me, my mum and dad and brother all speaking English. And I can do stuff like, you know, the train station or the hotel or the shops. Or, but I can't talk politics in, with a German person or converse about the universe. But I can ask for directions or, you know, buy something in a shop. What was life like in Germany when you grew up? I just remember it being lovely weather, lots of snow in the winter and lots of sun in the summer. Seasonal, which I liked. It was great. I mean, we were, you know, I was like probably the epitome of a little German kid. You know, I was blonde-haired and blue-eyed. My hair's a little different now. And uh, I think I probably looked quite German, you know. So the um, people were very nice to me. It was it was fun. I mean, you know, I think it was the same kind of nice childhood as it might have been if I'd lived in England. You know, I was 
outside a lot and active and constantly picking in the ground for dirt and anim- certain animals and always had dirty hands and dirty fingernails and fell off my bike in epic ways, you know, I just remember like flying through the air, you know, I have these very graphic kind of memories of me like flying like a stuntman in the air because I tried to do some jump and uh, scratching all my chest and my arms and stuff and, you know, grew up with my brother and was very close to my brother growing up and swam a lot, you know, we would constantly be swimming. I was, as a pretty, both my brother and I were pretty good swimmers by the age of six or seven and I was, you know, just very active little kid. Who were you in school? I was the class clown in school. I did impressions of all my teachers. So anytime I went into class or in and out of class, I could do everyone. I could do my head teacher, my deputy headmaster, my maths teacher, my English teacher, every teacher, you know. So kids would say, you know, whatever, do Mr. Brown or, you know, do Mrs. Braddock. And I would I would do it. I was, I thought I was going to be an impersonator when I was a kid, an impressionist, you know. But then I think I realised there was no... No money in it, no real future in it, you know. And I did school plays all my life, you know. I played Joseph in Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat when I was about seven. And uh, my my mum and dad were told by the teachers, like, he really likes this. Like, the other kids are kind of, like, saying the lines and standing in the line and, you know, oh, Joseph, don't do this, that's... But they said, you know... He really likes it, like he's interested and he's asking these questions and he wants to keep doing it. So they didn't tell me that at the time. They just went, oh, okay. And then um, all that stuff, you know, Tiny Tim in A Christmas Carol and um, The Artful Dodger and Oliver and Bugs Him Alone and stuff like that. And started to do youth theatre, really enjoyed it. And I think by the time I was, by the time I was, 10, 11, I think I knew I wanted to be an actor. Before then, I didn't know it was a job, really. I just thought it was like being an astronaut or a professional footballer, something that you couldn't really do, something that other people did. And I remember when I was like 14, I wanted to ask my parents for an agent, but I, I, didn't, I didn't have the bottle to do it. You know, I didn't have the courage to do it. And then uh, I did a play, did a play for Manchester Youth Theatre. And one of my friends at school... No, he wasn't at my school, he was at another school, but I knew him, played football with him. His dad was a producer at Granada that made shows like Coronation Street and a bunch of different stuff. And this is like pre-internet. And I asked him if he knew any agents and he printed out a list of agents from Manchester. And then I typed up a letter, you know, that was like, hello, my name is blah, 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 and I'm doing this play in Manchester on these dates. And... I would love you to attend. And I think two of them came and one of them offered to be my agent. And then I started working. At the age of? Like just 18. So I was like 17 and a half when it was happening. And I think just around the age of 18, I got this job on this BBC show called Hetty Wainthrop Investigates, which is a very catchy title, where I played a kind of greasy-haired zit-covered teenager, so very method, because I was that kid at the time, who did all the legwork for this elderly lady detective. So when I, when someone needed to run or climb a ladder or fall into a well, I would do all that stuff, you know, and then she would investigate and write things up. 
and I got the part. And then I sat down with my folks and said, what should I do? Because I was at college at the time studying drama and English lit. And my dad and mom said, well, you can always go back to college. You can work for six months and go back to college, but you can't do this again. You don't, you won't have this opportunity again. Someone else is going to do it. So why don't you do it? And then if there's no other jobs, you go back to college. So I did it. And then the jobs just kept coming. So I never graduated. I'm like a flunky. I have no education. Which is terrible. Well, is it? Do you have a complex, a no. complex for that? Mm -mm. I don't because I, I, a lot of, there's a culture in the United States where if, if, someone, if someone has had some success in their adult life, but they didn't graduate from high school or they didn't graduate from university, they're all super obsessed with going back and getting like an honorary diploma. You know, it's a big deal for them. Like, I never graduated college, but my college think that I'm a great rapper. So they've given me an honorary diploma and they like hold it up like, yay, I've been recognized. But I don't, I'm not interested in that. Really. It doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I continue to educate myself as an adult. I didn't need school to get educated. You know, I mean, I, I read more than I did when I was at school, you know, so it's not a big deal for me. You are a, an English uh, citizen, mm -hmm. but you don't have like a, an American passport as well. No, no, I'm a, I have an English pa or a British passport, I should say, but I am English. Do you vote? I haven't voted for a while. I can vote, but I haven't voted for a while. Why you, not? I haven't voted because I'm not hugely educated on English politics anymore or the stance that certain politicians will take. So I feel like I would vote from a point of ignorance and I don't think that's a good idea. There are certain things that I feel strongly about. but Such as? Well, I don't know. I think equality is kind of an interesting issue and I think anyone, if they're crazy enough, should have the right to marry. I think, you know, men and women should be treated equally and, and different sexualities should be treated equally and uh, different creeds and colors of skin i think we should have the freedom to do and say whatever we want as long as you're not hurting yourself or someone else i do think that the number one issue that we're going to deal with on our planet is the overpopulation of humans i think if there was another animal that had the same amount of influence on our planet as humans do that was breeding in the way that humans did we would control those populations, you know, if there was as many deer or as many bears or dogs, we would probably do something about it. But I think we are biased to hum the human species and um, there's too many of us and we breed irresponsibly. And you could argue that we're the most destructive animal on the planet and certainly not the most important I mean, I think we think we're important because we invented the computer or because we went to the moon. The most important animals on the planet are the ones that live in balance with the planet and don't cause a carbon footprint and create clean air and create clean soil and control their own populations, you know, but we don't do that. We just indiscriminately breed out of control. Well, China does. China does, yeah. yeah. And uh, maybe we need to re-explore that idea. I think that... Maybe you should be allowed to have your own child. And then if you have a second child, you should pay a penalty for doing that. 
or you can adopt for free. And then if you have your third child, you pay an even bigger penalty or you can adopt for free. And the money that you pay in the penalty goes towards benefiting the lives of unwanted children because people get left behind, you know. And um, I just think that there's not enough space for humans. And sooner or later, we're going to have to make the decision. Do we knock down these people's houses and make them homeless so that we can plant food to feed them? Or do we build more houses and cut down all this farmland and not have enough corn or maize or carrots to feed the people? You know, it's an issue. And that's just the food issue. I mean, it's also creating an air issue and an ocean issue. And we can't get out of the way of ourselves because we think that human beings are the most important animal on the planet because we can paint a picture. But we need to know the way that our planet works a little bit more and live in balance with it, which we don't do. The Swedes seem to do it quite well. Yeah. It's a recycling and responsibility and... Well, I guess so. I think that we have a bad conscience uh, constantly, though. Mo- most of us, the middle class does. Well, at least you're not Americans who just, you know, create a third of the world's waste or something ridiculous like that. And 50% of them don't have a passport. And, you know, they have ginormous families and just crazy. No, we don't We don't tend to fuck that much. You know? <laughs> Or maybe we do, we just use protection. Well, that's good, always use protection. You mean like a gun or something? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what made your family move back to England? My mum and dad's parents were getting older. I think they probably moved back when their parents were in their early 70s. And I think they wanted to be a little closer to their parents in the twilight of their years so that they could re-maintain or re-explore, I should say their relationship with them and have them get to know their grandchildren a little better. And my grandparents were around for probably another 15 years or so before they eventually went elsewhere. And also, if they'd have stayed in Germany, my brother would have had to go to school in England for further education, and so would have I. So it would have kept my mum and dad in Germany, but my brother and I both in England, and I don't think they wanted to do that. Okay, yeah. You started working at an early age. How did your Lord of the Rings gig come about? I was doing a play in London where I played a skinhead, no hair, and uh, kind of a little bit of a thug. And the play was quite well received. People seemed to like it, and magazines and newspapers wrote reviews on it that were quite good. And one of the casting directors from Lord of the Rings came to see it and then I think talked to my agent and said, you know, we're going to start doing castings for Lord of the Rings and we'd like Dominic to come in. So a few weeks later, I went in and read what was at the time the generic Hobbit audition, which was Frodo greeting Gandalf at the door after not seeing him for a long time and inviting him in and talking about the ring. And that happens a lot in auditions. And I think that's the reason why there's this myth that an actor originally read for one thing, but then got another part. That's not true. More often than not, it's because they write a generic male role 
and a generic female role for the audition and everyone reads that just to see if you're not stupid and that you can read and that you can act, you know. So the same thing happened in Lost. Most people read a generic Sawyer role and a generic Kate role. And one of the myths about Lost is, you know, whatever, Ian Summerholder originally read for Sawyer but got the role of Boone. Or Jorge Garcia originally read for Sawyer but got the role of Hurley. That's not true. It's just that's... They're not going to write 15 different scenes for 15 different characters. They'll just write one. So I read this generic Hobbit role and went back to work. And then I was actually living in France at the time because I, I had done a TV show there and then I just stayed with a, with a girl that I had become quite friendly with. <laughs> and uh, my agent called me and said, hey, you might need to fly to Los Angeles or New Zealand to sit down with Pete, Peter Jackson and um, talk about the role. And I said, oh, okay, great. And then a couple of days later, he called me up and said, no, you don't need to fly anywhere. They just offered you the part. So I said, great. So then I left France <laughs> and uh, went back to Manchester and packed a bag and uh, went to New Zealand for like almost two years. Did you ever like think about it or was it when you got the part, of course I'm going to do it? Yeah, there's no element of, of consideration about it. I mean, I was, you're always going to do it. It wasn't like, oh, okay, well, give me a day, let me think. It was obviously like, okay, great, you know, let's say yes. And there were, th there were things about it that were challenging. You know, my grandmother was dying at the time, so I essentially had to say bye to my grandmother because I knew I wasn't going to see her again. So that was kind of a bummer for both of us, I'm sure. But she had bigger things to think about. And leaving for two years and going away, you know, I mean, lots of relationships fractured and stuff like that. But... I think that's what happens in life when you make big decisions. Everything is affected and you have to make your peace with that, you know. But there wasn't like, uh, okay, so what was the pay again? I mean, you didn't... No, I didn't. You didn't care about that? No. I mean, I care about money because it helps me live, but I don't care about it to the extent that, you know, I'm not motivated by money to do jobs. I've not done a job based on money yet. I do jobs based on the role and the character and the opportunity. You know, with this, I thought, okay, great. It's a great role and, you know, it's, it's the lead and, and he has a lot of angst and that's great. I'm going to be in Sweden. I've never been to Sweden. I've never been to Stockholm. I get to explore a new city. I get to be there for a while. All those things, you know, I don't, I don't really ask about money. It's like later on I go, oh shit, I'm getting paid for that. That's great. You know, it's that kind of feeling. So... No, there was none of that. I was too young as well at the time. You know, my agent told me how it was going to be. It was the first time I ever flew business on a business class on a plane. I'd never flown business class before, you know. So he said, they're going to fly you business class from Manchester to Wellington, which is an epic flight. I mean, it's Manchester to London, London to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to Auckland, Auckland to Wellington. It's like 32 hours. And you get off and you just you know, lost your mind and you feel like you're walking on bubblegum for the next three days. Everything's soft and floaty and your balance is affected. So there were those things that I was very excited about and uh, I knew Lord of the Rings, you know. We, uh, we had listened to the storybook tapes when we were kids and read The Hobbit and 
So I knew the characters. I, d- I don't think I knew how big it was going to be or how ambitious it was until Pete showed us around. I think the second day I was there, Pete showed us around the set for Bag End, where Bilbo lives, where Bilbo and Frodo live. So he showed us this set that they'd built all circular with pipes and maps and scarves hanging on the wall and a little working fireplace and tables and chairs. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And he said, let me go show you the Gandalf set. And I was confused. I was like, okay. So we went and then he showed me the exact same bag end, but it was small so that Gandalf could walk around in it and be tall. And it was perfect. You know, everything was the same. The pictures were slightly off balance and the scarf was on the wall and the fireplace was there. And just thought, wow, this, this guy is unbelievable, you know. And then he made a very specific decision to start with the hobbits. Everything began with the hobbits and branched out from there. So the first probably month to six weeks of filming was, was the hobbits. It was all you know, hiding from the Black Rider, running to the Brandywine Bridge in the Shire, meeting Strider. So the Hobbits began and then they would introduce characters to the Hobbits. So they'd be like, here's Gandalf coming in, here's Aragorn, here's Legolas, here's Gimli. And they, we were almost kind of the foundation in a way and it was a great feeling to, to be at the centre of it all. Great project. Yeah, yeah. It must have been quite unique to work with that for such a long time as well. Mm. Could you like paint us a picture of, uh, I mean, the lunches, the, the, your life in, in the spare time as well. Mm. Are you tired of talking about this? No, no. That's, I'm always, I think, going to talk about it. And it was a great, it was a great experience. A lot of, a lot of the cast was made up of young men, myself, Elijah Wood, Billy Boyd, Orlando Bloom. We were all single. You know, the four of those guys were single. Sean Astin was married, but he was still, you know, fun to hang out with. Vigo was single. Sean Bean was single. So the, the kind of center of the, of the cast was generally made up of young, single men that liked to be busy and active. And so we would, you know, bungee jumping and whitewater rafting and horse riding and sword fighting and dialect training and, and, doing a lot of adventures, going out to bars. And I think Elijah was 18 at the time. He'd never drank, you know, because in LA, you, in America, you can't drink until you're 21. So we were like, well, fuck that. Let's go drinking. Like, you need to you need to understand what this means. So we just getting hammered, you know, and we looked after him, but I mean, we definitely put him through his paces. And we were all interested in film and music and clothes and girls. And so we're constantly swapping stuff, you know. It would take us about, three hours or so to go through makeup and feet and ears and wigs and all that kind of stuff. And in that time, we'd always be like, oh, have you heard this album? No, I'll put it on. Oh, okay, you write stuff down. And have you seen this film? No, oh, I'll put it on. You know, we were always sharing information. And so there was a lot of new experiences for us all. And we all became very good friends, you know, with the crew as well, obviously. Elijah and I DJed in town, so there's a lot of parties, so we're all together. And it was hard work, it was long hours. The Hobbits were usually in first and out last. So it wasn't uncommon for us to be picked up at 5.15, 
it wasn't uncommon for us to be driving home at 9 p.m. So it was long days, but we knew that the work that we were doing was big and fun and adventurous. And uh, Pete was the general. He was the the guy pulling all the strings and he was very smart and responsible and fun to be around and clearly had a great mind. And uh, there's nothing that we wouldn't do for him. We were like soldiers in an army and he would say you know go over there and we'd go do it you know so it was it was a real boys adventure and there was girls there I mean you know Liv Tyler came and went and Kate Blanchett came and went and whenever there was beautiful women around we were always like oh you know all these men you know hi how are you can I get you anything could you get them anything well what the, I mean what we went out with Liv a lot we were all very good friends with Liv she was young like us and she was part of the gang so she would come out and you know have fun with us and drink and all that kind of stuff Kate Blanchett was married and a little bit more responsible but we would all just fawn all over both of those girls I remember one time like you know all the guys were like sat in a bar we were on location somewhere we were all sat in a bar it was like me and Vigo and Sean and a, and a few other people And Kate Blanchett was with us and she came into the bar and we'd never really seen her that much. We'd been on set with her, but she didn't really come and socialize that much. She did every so often, but not a lot. And she came down to the bar in this amazing outfit with this, you know, flowing scarf and perfect hair type of thing. And I just remember us all like, we all jumped up, you know, oh, do you want a drink? Do you want a drink? What do you, do you, come sit down, come sit down, come, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, She's very sweet. She's a very lovely, lovely lady, you know, and um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. But I mean, that age is so, uh, I mean, in the early 20s, it's a very defining age, I guess, mm. for any person. Mm. But this must have been a really special place to have that period in life, sort of. Yeah, it certainly was. It certainly was. And I'm delighted that I didn't, completely lose my marbles doing it you know I wasn't I wasn't totally irresponsible while doing it I think I like my job so much that the the motivation to me was the work and then if I was free and I had time I would go play but if I had to work the next day I'd be like oh great cool I'm going to work I love going to work I never I've never once as an actor gone home and then got a phone call that night saying okay, here's what's happening tomorrow, and thought, ah, oh, shit, I've got to work. I'm always like, great, cool, let's go to work, you know? Yeah. Mm. And after this period of two years, you moved to Los Angeles, or? Mm. Yeah. Directly? Mm, I went back to Manchester for, like, two or three months, and then I called my agent and said, it's kind of quiet, you know, what should I do? And he said, well, you should move to London. And I thought, I'm not going to move to London. Why not? Because it's full of Londoners. and uh, I'm from the north of England and it was expensive and moody they have shitty football teams there and I didn't want to do that so I thought well I'll move to LA instead where they have great football teams (laughs) yeah (laughs) they have better weather and uh, the lifestyle was cooler and Elijah lived there and um, I have this distinct memory of taking a moment to stop while I was packing my suitcase and thinking, 
I am literally packing my bags and moving to Hollywood. I'm doing that thing that you read about in books and biographies and memoirs, you know. And then I packed and moved to Hollywood, you know. I thought, this is that moment that I'm doing that, you know. And uh, then I moved to L.A. And it was as quiet, if not quieter, in L.A. for the first year or so that I was there was a struggle because the lord of the rings movie was in post-production right it hadn't yeah. come out yet so i think i i, I mean it's, it's a long time ago so i can't really work it out now but it was probably you know i probably moved to la in something like a, a february but it wasn't until that december that lord of the rings came out or maybe even after that you know and uh and it was it was a, a trial but ultimately rewarding and what i needed to do what did you do uh, during that year where did you live in i lived just near the four seasons hotel in a kind of granny flat in my then manager's house which had nothing didn't it didn't have a toilet <laughs> it had a fridge and a bed and a tv and that was it so i couldn't cook and um I did a lot of drugs and I did a lot of partying and hung out with the wrong people or maybe the right people at the time. You know, maybe I needed to go through that. It's like soldiers coming back from war. They have to act out a little bit and misbehave so that they can come back to normal. And I think we'd been, or at least I'd been, having this adventure. And I think I needed to come back down to earth with a bump and I did that. What did you do? Uh, was it like cocaine and... Uh... No, not cocaine. I don't like cocaine. It's too expensive. And uh, I think everyone turns into a dickhead on cocaine. Everyone talks about themselves, which is interesting because I spent the last hour talking about myself. But um, everyone talks about how amazing they are and that they're inventing the future and uh, they're a wizard. Just people on coke drive me crazy. I tend to avoid that. I smoked a lot of weed and did a lot of hallucinogenics. Did a lot of mushrooms and acid and peyote and salvia and drugs. I just found out that salvia isn't actually the the spice. It's something else, right? Mm, yeah, salvia in the States at least is a hallucinogenic plant. But there's, certain bre there's different breeds of salvia. I actually grow salvia in my garden, but it's not the hallucinogenic type. I think it's a Mexican type of salvia that, that produces a hallucinogenic experience. And for me, being interested in the Beatles and art and other worlds and stuff like that, it was something that I was drawn to. So I did a lot of that and uh, waited for the phone to ring. But were you, at any time, were you worried about your lifestyle? You mean like drugs and stuff? Yeah. No, I wasn't really worried about the drug thing because regardless of the slightly misguided element of doing that many drugs in that short amount of time, I was learning, you know, and I, I don't know. I think you have to be careful with drugs because I think drugs to a certain extent dictate your mood, just amplifies your mood a little more. So if you're slightly unhinged, it will unhinge you a little bit more. But if you are solid, then I think you can handle it. And um, I think at, the, at, at my very foundation, I think I could handle it. You know, I think I had the pe 
parents and the upbringing and the education and the knowledge to to be okay with it. I was worried about my career. You know, I was worried about the fact that all my friends were working and doing well and getting auditions for things that I wanted and meeting directors and writers that I wanted to meet and I, I wasn't. But that's because it wasn't where I was putting my focus. You know, I was putting my focus on the kind of underworld. But ultimately, like I said, it was rewarding. And it also dictated a lot into the way that I understood Charlie, which was the next thing that really pulled me out of that, you know, when I met JJ and we sat down and talked about Charlie and someone being frustrated with their career, someone having a small amount of success and then failing and falling into drugs and the wrong women and the wrong people. I knew that. I knew what that was, you know. So I could tell him, oh, well, then he'd do this, he'll do that. And I think ultimately that's probably why I got the opportunity to play Charlie and why I could play him authentically. Mm. So I wouldn't advocate drugs at all. I don't think you should... I don't think you should do drugs. I don't think you should... Uh, I don't think you should explore them if... Um, unless you know something about them. I would never... I'd never say to someone who's having a tough time, oh, go do drugs, you know. I'd never say that. I don't think that's how you should do that, I think. Um, I think that's... Uh, you're not that original right. in that way. <laughs> right. I hope not. Right, yeah. Well, if you feel a little bit depressed, maybe you should try some heroin and then call me tomorrow and see, see uh, how it works out. Uh, there's a great interview with Jarvis Cocker, the lead singer of Pulp, who, I guess, when Pulp were at their highest height, he had said that he was doing quite a lot of cocaine and partying a lot. And they asked him why he quit that. And Jarvis, in his very laconic kind of attitude, said, well, you never hear someone say, oh, those couple of years that I did cocaine, so much fun, it's such a great time in my life, and I learned, and I, you know, did, you know, did all this kind of expansive growth. You know, you just, you, you become self-involved and self-indulgent, you know. So I think apathy is the real killer. Yeah, know? exactly. If you're passionate about something, whether you love it or hate it, that's that's potentially quite rewarding but apathy is the real thing that that kills you you know and you know like i said earlier on i mean john lennon's a big hero of mine and i would always explore his interviews and his life and there's a there's a classic interview with him where he talks about being straight for the first time in his adulthood and he said you know look i've been there i've been to those places i've done everything and nothing's better than being straight nothing makes you feel better than you know, having someone who you love hold you at night and being present in that moment, you know, not having it seen through the filter of a different drug, you know. But I'm also an explorer in my life, physically, but also mentally, you know. I explore places that are unknown and scary and weird. And I like that. And sometimes you can only get there through meditation or through sleeping in a forest or through a certain drug you know so i never i i don't like the idea of drug abuse you know the drug using you you need to use the drug and the way that you do that is to limit the amount of exposure you have to that thing you know if i if i ever feel like i'm going to do something like that i do it with a notebook and a pen and a paper and i use it for 
I work, you know. I read a, I read the script again when I'm having that experience. How do I how do I understand it through a different filter? So in in this uh, particular notebook, are yeah. there any drug related? There's probably some slightly stoned evenings, but I mean, if I get stoned. You write really, really big in it. Well, this is the start of it. So this, this is all motivational stuff. So this says, no, no one can rob you. No one can rob you of your brightest day, and today is it. And then I wrote, adversity is opportunity, which is something that I believe in. Yeah. And then I wrote, pressure is your energizer. I don't understand what this thing. Don't know what that note is on the bottom. And then all this is notes about police officers. Okay. So this is things that I learned from interviewing police officers and what they've told me and common threads and certain drawings about how ants and termites behave with each other. <laughs> and there's coffee stains on it. It's yeah. really, I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah, this is with me all the time. So sometimes my writing is, is more organized and... Anything that's on the right is a diary entry, and anything on the left is a is a note. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff here about Sweden, where I live. This is the street that I live on. Cheap Monday clothing, weekday clothing store, which is on Kungsgarten. Yeah. And, and then books about serial killers and some stuff. Oh, like NK Clothing and Hope Shop and address of the production office and stuff like that you know it's like my guide almost yeah yeah many notes about fashion yeah <laughs> are you into clothes i like clothes yeah i mean i you know i i like clothes that at their basis have a functionality you know i don't wear anything that makes me feel uncomfortable or like i i understand that lady gaga has to wear a certain clothing because it makes her this this character but for me i don't understand that she wears things that are uncomfortable or stop her from moving everything for me has to function correctly but i don't think you have tried a proper uh, meat <laughs> meat dress then i have not tried it yet maybe i'll try it while i'm here but um i do like clothes i mean i like different styles and fashions i like a lot of bold ideas and yeah We were talking a little bit about your experiences with drugs, but would you say that you have an addictive personality? No, I don't, which is the reason why I'm able to enjoy those experiences. And I'm also fascinated by this culture that I'm understanding very quickly in Sweden that is very anti-drug, you know. I mean, I was I was told that police officers have a zero tolerance policy to any aspect of drugs and that you if you were someone who enjoyed drugs you need to be very careful about how you do that now i've spent years living in los angeles i've lived well i've not lived but i've been to amsterdam a few times i've spent time in new york and places like that where things like marijuana and in in england as well just decriminalized you know i mean in england marijuana has been decriminalized for probably the best part of 10 years you know i mean if you have what they understand to be enough weed for yourself and no one else and you can argue that point succinctly 
then the police officers won't do anything to you. If you're walking down the street and, and you're smoking a joint, the police officer will probably take that joint away from you, destroy it, and tell you to move on. And if you're in your house, if you're growing weed, but it's just for your own personal use, then the police officers won't do anything about it. If you're selling it, you'll be prosecuted. If you're dealing it, you'll be prosecuted. And if you're blatant about using it on the street, then maybe, you you know, if you smoke it outside a police station, they might say, all right, you're being an idiot. You know, you're just asking for trouble. But I think there's a, there's a freedom idea, certainly behind marijuana. I think, I think the vast majority of drugs are, are really quite dangerous. You know, I think heroin and cocaine and crystal meth and crack is very dangerous. And there's a reason why it's unlawful and, and criminal to have. They're trying to, they're trying to stop people, dissuade people from using it. But I mean, if you feel strongly about marijuana to the point where you think that it should be illegal, then you need to probably throw away most of your music and the vast majority of your art, because a lot of that is influenced by that plant. And it's not a drug, you know, it's a plant. Drugs are it's a great piece of comedy by an by a American comedian from don't know where he's from, maybe New Orleans or something like that, called Cat Williams, and he talks about marijuana, and he says, you know, it's, you know, drugs are, you add chemicals to each other and you go through a chemical reaction, you create a drug, but, you know, marijuana grows, it just grows. It has sunlight and uh, it turns into this plant and it grows. You don't need to put it through any kind of process to turn it into what it actually naturally wants to be, you know, and if you just so happen to heat it to a to a certain temperature, it has these uh, chemical reactions that can be positive and certainly can be negative at times. But I think that's that's more of a dictation on your personality than anything else. If you've had experiences with marijuana that are always negative, my argument would be that there is something in your brain that might not work correctly and maybe you look at things negatively. If you're an anxious person, then if you smoke marijuana, you're probably going to amplify that anxiousness and feel shitty about marijuana. But if you're a balanced person, I think it just dictates a little bit more balance. But I got told at the production office for this show, you know, they just said to me, they were like, look, we don't know if you drink, we don't know if you smoke cigarettes, we don't know if you smoke a pipe, we don't know if you smoke marijuana, we don't know if you mainline cocaine. But whatever you do, do it privately don't talk about it and certainly don't do it out and about in the streets because you'll be in trouble. And I, that's surprising to me. I thought, I thought Sweden was quite a liberal, free country. I mean, politically and socially, you guys seem very smart and modern, but there's this idea that if you do a drug, you are a junkie. That's not true, from my understanding. We do love uh, our alcohol, though. Mm, which is a drug that is taxed. That's the only reason. It's just yeah. taxed by the government. Mm. So are cigarettes. So don't do these drugs because the government can't make money on them, but do these drugs because the government benefits. There seems to be a hypocrisy there. About the uh, non-addictive personality, then, you've, I've understood that you've been accustomed to setting really hard rules for yourself. Like, mm. you didn't eat salt for a year. Mm. Yeah. You passed on bread for a year. Mm. Yeah, sugar. I didn't drink alcohol for a year. Yeah. 
I like challenges. I set myself challenges. And in that book I wrote, Adversity is Opportunity. I think, I think when you hone yourself, it sharpens you. And I think that that's important. I like to set myself tests to see how I do, to see how I perform, to see how I react to failure, which is a huge part of tests. You know, we, we fail. I think that's one of the things that you understand from testing yourself, you know, that at some point you fail. And how do you react to that failure? But I think that probably a lot of that comes about because I like New Year's resolutions. I like New Year's Eve. It's my favorite holiday of the year. I like fresh starts. I like new beginnings. I like the opportunity to reinvent yourself, to start again. And because of that, New Year's Eve is always a big thing for me. I usually dress up. I usually throw a party. I usually go somewhere fun. And I'm always asking people around the table, what's your resolution? What's your resolution? What's your resolution? And people are like, oh, I don't do resolutions because by the time you get to the end of January, you've fucked it up, you know. That's true of me too. A lot of times I'll get it wrong, but I, I tend to always set one because I think it's fun. What did you do for the 2014 New Year's? New uh, Year's? Yeah, 2014's resolution was to take certain words out of my vocabulary. I have attempted, although I'm going to say it now, but that's okay. I've attempted to stop saying the word try because... It, it holds no value. You should either do something or not do it, but trying has some connotation associated with failure. And Yoda said, do or do not, there is no try. And I love Yoda. So <laughs> this is a quote from Yoda on my arm. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. And that's something that I've you know loved all my life and, and has spoken to me. So I got the tattoo. So I took out the word try and certain negative words like you know fail or attempt i just i just thought well see what that means in your life if you don't if you don't say anything that has the potential to be critical about yourself how did you get this idea i don't know i've been playing around with it for a, a while i've always said to people to never offer anything negative about yourself it's okay to think something negative about yourself and to explore that but I don't think you should present that negatively and I don't think that you should I think if someone compliments you you should say thank you I don't think you should argue that it's not true I don't I can't stand that when people do that oh you look pretty today no I don't my hair is terrible oh my I need to do this and oh my you know my I'm I messed up my eye makeup today oh I hate this dress and Why Why am I fucking complimenting you anyway? Like, I'm trying to be nice, and you're telling me that that's not the case, you know? I, I, I've done that with my mum for years, you know? I've just said, just take it, take the compliment, just say thanks. It's easier that way. So I think it came out of that. I think that I think words are important, and the way that we talk about ourselves is very important, and there are ways that I sometimes talk about myself that, that might not be helpful. So I tried to take, tried, interesting. So I took those out of my vocabulary. Yeah. It's not easy. No. <laughs> yeah. Do you believe in God? No, I don't. I'm an atheist. But I believe in um I believe in some things that I can't tangibly understand. I believe in karma, whatever that is. I believe that if we treat people and the world in a positive way, positive things tend to happen to you. 
I believe that negative people think that the world is a negative place because they treat it negatively and then people are negative towards them. And also inanimate objects are negative towards them too. And I can't understand that, but I've found that that's true. I have a relationship in my house with my oven and my fridge and my microwave and my utensils because I want them to behave in the way that I want them to. And I think that they do that more if you're nice to them or nicer to them, you know. So I think there's a, there's a, I think people think there's a madness associated with that. But for me, it makes sense, you know. I live on my own. I've lived on my own since I was 18. I was talking to a girl once who I won't, I won't reveal her name because what she said was a little negative. But she said to me, have you noticed that everyone at the airport is rude? And I said, no, not really. And she said, and also everyone in hotels are rude too. Have you noticed that? Like all receptionists are rude. And everyone that checks you into your flight and everyone that gives you a drink on your flight, they're all rude. And I said, have you noticed that you are the common thread in that? that maybe you approach things in a negative way and people are negative towards you. That's just not, I don't do it like that. I assume that everything is good until it it tells me that it's not. But we were talking about God, I think, the God concept. That's the untangible that I can't understand, but it makes sense to me. I think it makes a little bit more sense with living things. You know, if if I work with a snake that's annoyed with me, but I put my hands on it. I notice that after a couple of minutes, that snake will usually calm down because it picks up on my energy that I'm not going to hurt it and that I'm not here for a negative reason. I can understand that. We are energetic creatures and energy gets exchanged between animals. You know, as human beings, that happens. But certainly animals that don't speak the same language, if a wolf sees a bear, they understand the energy You know, if the bear stands up and says, fuck off, the wolf might not speak that language, but it knows what that means, you know. So that makes sense. But I don't really know how I can have a spoon that's nicer to me than another spoon. But it seems to happen, so... (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Would you like to recommend anything? Yeah, I'll recommend a few kind of pieces of art. I'm a big fan of the Icelandic group Sigaros, as I know you are too, who I think are fantastic and should be listened to. I think they make really great music that puts you in a very important headspace that allows you to think. It's not mindless music, it's mindful music. American Psycho is my favourite book, which I think is vilified as a book about a serial killer, you know, who's obsessed with blood and death and graphic killing, which there is elements of that in there. But for me, American Psycho is a real exploration into madness, the madness of the main character, but also the madness of the author and the madness of the reader and your responsibility in there. The first line is, abandon hope, all ye who enter. And I think that's a warning sign to the reader. You know, there's nothing in here that's going to help you. It's You're going to go somewhere dark. And the authors said, I've told you this. So you need to take responsibility for that. I think it's 
fascinating book and I loved it. Yeah, so I recommend those two things. Great. And who would you like me to interview in Vervet International? Man, Kat Von D is a really interesting lady because she's an artist and a great artist and likes to travel a lot and has great connections in Europe and I think she comes to Europe quite a lot and she has a lot of really interesting things to say and she's a lovely person. So, especially in terms of the conversation that we just had, I think Kat would really enjoy that. So, Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it was great talking to you. It was really fun. Yes, that was my chat with the wonderful Dominic Monaghan. And if you would like to see Wild Things with Dominic Monaghan, I think that season two premieres any day now in the UK and in the US as well. Yes, that's all for this week. And please follow Varvet in uh, social media uh, to keep up with uh, what's happening. That's uh, Varvet Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, we also have a Facebook page. And you can also mail us at pod at varvetpod.com. Yes, and uh, the people doing this uh, with me are uh, uh, Christina Jerling Biro. She's my producer. My editor's name is Lovisa Olson, and sponsoring the show is Stutterheim.com. Talk to you in a week. Bye bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.